Men become builders by building houses, musicians by playing music, and professors by being lifelong students. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer behind the scenes, Marcus Sassen. This quote leads us into our guest today, Dr. Adam Korak, a biomechanics professor at the University of St. Thomas, certified strength conditioning coach, head of the St. Thomas Strength and Conditioning Club, and a diehard Alabama fan. Dr. Korak is always looking for ways to learn and teach in life. I had the pleasure of working with Dr. Korak at UST, and one of my favorite things about talking with him is the different lenses in which he sees things through as an academic, and how we're able to bump back thoughts back and forth from what actually goes on in the weight room to what is happening in research. Today, we talked about the mindset behind keeping doors open, how biomechanics can help with athletic development, and what your role as a leader really is. I'm really excited for you guys to listen, and hopefully you guys get something out of this. Thank you for listening. All right, well, welcome to Studio. I'm super excited to have you in and be able to discuss. We already just got done talking for like 20 minutes, all hyped up. So this this is going to be a good one. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Um, so I grew up in Huntsville, Alabama, and uh, I've never been in Huntsville or heard about it. It's a town probably a little bit smaller than uh, St. Paul, uh, probably about 250, 300,000 people. And uh, you have NASA there, Boeing, government contractors, military bases that specifically um, work on missile defense, counterterrorism stuff. <laughs> okay. So uh, fun fact, there's actually, the most engineers and PhDs per capita of any city in the country is Huntsville, Alabama. So it's literally have a lot of rocket scientists there. It's pretty cool. So it's it's a pretty there's a it's not your stereotypical I think like Alabama small town city. You know? Yeah, it's a pretty educated you know hip younger type city. So how big is this city itself? Is it a pretty big yeah? City? So think of like a common like in between like a Mankato and St. Paul. Okay. So think of something like a blend of that middle ground. Yeah. So I grew up there, um, played sports growing up, um, specifically baseball and football in high school. You know, I was quarterback and uh, safety and and in football, and you know, I was okay, but I would say. My my sport I was better at was baseball. Um, I was a center fielder. I could run a little bit and uh, pitch too. And uh, you know, you see, I'm not a very big guy. I'm a little under five ten, but I threw submarine style. Okay. So a fun <laughs> little story here, man. I went to a professional pitching coach when I was like 13, 14. My dad took me there, and uh, he's like, "How tall are you gonna be?" I'm like six four. He's like, "How tall is your dad?" I'm like five ten. He's like, "You're now a submarine pitcher." <laughs> he's like, "You got to be different, you know. Like throwing 82 with a grunt over the top isn't different. Yo. Throwing 82 sidearms a little different, right?" So. <laughs> Uh, and that was able to give me the opportunity to actually go on and play some junior college baseball, too, for a year right after. And uh, junior college baseball in the South is pretty competitive. Uh, okay. I had actually had two guys that I played with that played professionally for about seven, eight years. Um, so did that for a year. And um, that was kind of a hardship that I kind of dealt with after my first year in college was um, I kind of realized I wasn't the guy anymore. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, um, and a lot of my buddies were at big universities, you know, Auburn, Alabama, um, you know, these 30, 40,000 student universities seem like having a great time. And I'm living in, uh, no disrespect, with a small town, Decatur, Alabama, you know, and not being the guy in the sport anymore. And, and kind of had to measure, do I want to continue to do this or do I want to... Um, you know, kind of get into, go down and actually being at a four-year institution and actually decided that. So I ended up uh, my sophomore year transferring down to Alabama and just being a student. Okay. You know, but I played every intramurals that I could. You know, I was, it was really there where I started developing a lot of time in the gym. And uh, like, I knew some buddies from high school that I played sports with that were there with me, some of my roommates. And that's when I started to really notice, like I started being a little different from my buddies from the actual like time in the weight room and time in training um you know i was four or five days a week uh as a full-time student you know and, and all these intramurals that i could 
um, my whole time at the University of Alabama. And um, it's kind of interesting, too. You know, when I first got there, like a lot of people and a lot of my students, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Um, but I, you know, I was decent at baseball. I liked it and I liked sports. And I was like, you know what? I'll be a secondary education major, major in history. I enjoy I enjoy history and uh, just coach baseball and football, you know. And uh, then I realized I don't really like young kids. <laughs> and it's probably not the best idea for me to uh, to get into secondary education. And, and this is where it got a little interesting here is this was like in my, you know, about first part of my junior year, you know, like, oh, shit, man, I don't really know what I want to do with my life. So I looked at athletic training because they had a, uh, you know, a certified program at the University of Alabama in athletic training. But the issue there was it was going to be it's a three year program once you're accepted into the program. Okay. And I was a junior at the time. And I was like, I don't want to be a 60-year senior, yeah, you know, coming out with a bachelor's degree. You know, it's the old Tommy boy saying, you know, a lot of people graduate in seven years. He's like, yeah, they're called doctors, right? And I didn't, <laughs> I didn't, want, to, I didn't want to do that route. So, uh, but I liked, you know, being in the gym and being around, you know, athletes and people that are motivated to push themselves physically. So I ended up gravitating towards exercise science. And which is what I teach here at the University of St. Thomas. And um, um, like 75% of my students, I thought I wanted to be a physical therapist. And then I got in the, the PT clinic to do some observation and just it seemed like it wasn't going to be a really good fit for me uh, for an occupation. And that's where things got a little interesting because graduation date's approaching. Um, I'm in my uh, last uh, spring semester, my senior year, uh, with a May graduation date and still really didn't know what I wanted to do yet. I was looking into maybe getting joining service getting into the navy um i was talking to some navy recruiters possibly trying to get into buds and you know try to maybe be a seal or something one day right and so just i still in that limbo of like maybe graduate maybe go to graduate school maybe join the service like what do i do with my life and uh austin this is where it got a little interesting so march of 2012 you know the last part of my senior year i got a phone call from a professor at the university of north alabama which is a separate institution from the university of alabama and he called and he's like hey adam Corrett. i'm not for you he's like hey matt green here like a real southern accent right <laughs> sharpest one of the sharpest guy i've ever met but like you know the stereotypical like deep southern accent and hey matt green here and uh, he know he knows and knew and worked with the professor that I was currently studying under at the University of Alabama. Okay. And he's like, hey, I know Phil Bishop, and uh, I used to work with him. Uh, I was a grad student under him 20 years prior, and uh, he's like, I have a GA position open for you. Um, I called Phil Bishop and I asked for the name of his best student, and your name came up. And uh, I was like, wow, oh, this is interesting. So drove up there to the interview, and uh, he's like, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll give you a stipend, and a very small stipend looking back, but all my tuition was going to be waived. So, you know, I was like, okay, well, and the beauty of it, too, it was a 33-hour program, like credit program, that you could do in a year. So I literally was able to do summer, spring, fall, summer, and finish in basically 13, 14 months with a master's for free. Which is awesome. Yeah. So I was like, you know what, let's, let's do that. You know, and even in my time there, I still didn't know what I want to do with my life. Everything was kind of in limbo. I was still talking to Navy recruiters in my master's program. You know, I dabbled a little bit in the strength conditioning realm. I did an internship with uh, uh, their division one now, but at the time they were really good division two football program i did a strength conditioning internship uh there liked it but i tell you as you know austin like it's it's long hours man it's Mm -hmm. it's it's early mornings late nights you know and and uh you know i didn't know if i liked it enough to commit to the amount of work 
in that field. Yep. You know what I'm saying? So it's uh, it's if you're if if I'm gonna invest in something, I'm gonna give them my all. But I really I didn't in the from actually getting into strength conditioning and doing that as like occupation, I, I still wasn't sold on it yet. If that makes sense. But uh, you know, I just I kept uh, I kept making good grades. You know, like and let me backtrack a step here. When I was at Bama, uh, and and he's like, hey, you're you're the best student that Phil's got. I, I wasn't academically the strongest student. I might have been a 3-4, three, 3-3 three, three GPA guy, but, you know, I was on time in class. I stayed off my phone. I sat on the front row. I asked questions. I participated in studies. You know, I, hang, I hung around after class, not to, like, brown nose, but to just absorb the knowledge that this guy, this uh, Dr. Phil Bishop had. You know, I just I wanted to just emulate him you know and because of that I guess he took a he saw something in me that maybe I didn't see in myself at the time and, and that's why my name was given out to the professor at the University of North Alabama and I, I recruited up there went there back half then in my master's degree still not knowing what I want to do with my life they had kind of established a pipeline at University of North Alabama to Middle Tennessee State's PhD program and I drove up there interviewed for a teaching assistant position and was like hey I'm going to get a little bit higher of a stipend here and tuition's still waived so maybe I can go get a PhD for free yep. and then figure out what I want to do with my life right so um, started teaching there and um, you know I wasn't necessarily a TA. A TA, most people think is, and it's true, you're in the classroom assisting the professor. I was the instructor of record at 23 years old, teaching, you know, some strength conditioning courses, some NA, uh, some NASM, uh, NASM courses, yep. um, uh, exercise physiology labs. You know, I was the guy issuing grades, making syllabi and stuff like that. And then, you know, as we talked a little bit off air, you know, at about 25, you know, I kind of had hit a point where I'm like, I don't know if I want to keep doing this. You know, you hit a point at 25 years old where a lot of your buddies that graduated three years earlier are really starting to get in those really good occupations, some higher paying jobs. And here you are making $14,000 a year on a stipend, you know, uh, even though the tuition's all waived, you know, you're really pretty you're on a budget. poor. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was it was kind of like the euphoria of, of starting your doctoral program had worn off and you were seeing how much work was still left to come. You know, but luckily I had a lot of support from my parents, John and Michelle, uh, my at the time girlfriend and now wife. Isadora, uh, a lot of support from family, friends, uh, even my uh, little dog, uh, Aussie Blue Healer at the time, you know, like having having that stuff, um, you know, just I, I kind of let the pity party kind of fall one day and was like, you know what, I'm going to put my head down and just grind through this. And really at the time started to really fall in love with teaching and seeing the impact that I was starting to have on some of my students really started to drive an interest about my last two years like okay I want to go into higher academia and not only higher academia itself I want to go to a teaching institution I don't want to go to univer like say University of Minnesota is an R1 school that means that the professors there, it's a published or parish university. Their job is to publish papers and bring in grant money. They might gotcha. teach one class a year, and they have a horde of doctoral students working with them to help them research. I got a buddy, Ole Miss, and uh, he's in his second or third year there. He has to publish 30 times to go up for tenure. That's six publications a year, right? I knew I didn't want to do that. I wanted to come, and ironically, like a university like here at the University of St. Thomas, that has a research requirement, but you have to be a good teacher here. Mm-hmm. You have to be an effective teacher here. Number one, you're not going to get hired. Number two, if you if you trick them and they hire you, you're not going to get tenure five years later. Yeah. You know what I mean? But it. you do have to research as well. So I like I like not being told I have to research. I like to research on stuff that I want to research on. 
which we'll talk a little bit about, which I have worked with some athletes and, and primarily my research, at least used to be a lot of in the strength conditioning realm. My whole dissertation looked at mechanical differences between different squatting variations and deadlift variations. So so what was your journey like after you, you graduated with the PhD to St. Thomas? What was that gap like? Yeah, absolutely. So the way it kind of works is fall of your last year. So in higher academia, they will post a position. So say that there's an opening in the fall of 2020 at the University of St. Thomas. They will have posted that job in the fall of 2019, so a year out. Okay. Right, in preparation to bring you in the following year. And uh, so in the fall of 2016, um, I started applying for jobs for a fall 2017 start date. And I applied for 20 jobs. Uh, I ended up getting interviews at uh, five or six of them. And actually had, I was very fortunate, I had four offers. Okay. I had the University of St. Thomas. Uh, I had Cabrini College outside of Philadelphia. Um, Tennessee State and Nashville. So I could have stayed in Nashville, which is where I was doing my, doc- my doctorate. And uh, West Palm Beach, Florida at Kaiser University. And there was also some interest coming from the University of Tampa. I was told I was down to one of two candidates. And it was really all about fit. You know, like this is a great university with great students, highly motivated students. I, my wife works full-time in like a corporate America job. So I knew bringing her to the Twin Cities would have a lot of job potential. Mm-hmm. And I'm a really active guy. I love being outdoors. And even though, as you see behind me, they have a giant <laughs> snowstorm going on, <laughs> you know, you know, like it's, it's a pretty cool place outdoors to do. So, you know, that interview process was interesting because you were a student at the time when I was interviewing up here. Yep. Yeah. I think you might've even been a junior. Because you graduated in May 2018. Yep. Right? I got here in the fall of 2017. But uh, it's really interesting. I want to get in your chit-chat with you because I never I never taught you. Yeah. You were one of those guys in that class of seniors that I really wish I had the opportunity to teach. Um, he says, uh, your personality is chit-chat. And I think we would have really had a good connection <laughs> in the classroom. But, um, yeah. So, um, yeah, when I was interviewing up here, it was funny. You know, like, you know, can you teach this? Can you teach that? When you're on an interview, what I've learned, it's a yes, sir, yes, ma'am to every question mm-hmm. they ask. You know what I mean? So, so, well, that that's keeping the doors open that, in that. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely. As we talked earlier, you know, like my, the way I try to approach um, my life and occupation is keeping doors open. Mm-hmm. So when we talked about my senior year at Alabama not knowing what I wanted to do, I think what I did well was I kept doors open. You know, I, I wasn't a great a- academically, but I was strong enough. You know, I, I did things the right way at the time. So I didn't shut any doors. So when that prof called at the University of North Alabama and was like, hey, you want to come up here? I was like, sure, why not? The Navy can wait or whatever other job I want to pursue can wait. So I kept that door open. I had the opportunity to either do an internship or a thesis during my master's. And I got really good advice from one of my uh, mentors at the time. I was like, well, I can do this for credit internship, get into strength conditioning, or I could do this pretty large research project called a thesis. And if I did not do a thesis, that would have shut the door for going in and doing a PhD. You can still get into strength conditioning doing a research project, yeah. right? So that's how I viewed it. So I kept that door open. You know, I was teaching while I was doing my doctorate and doing research. So that allowed me to come to a university like this, right? So let's say I would have been only re- doing a lot of research in grad school and no teaching. I wouldn't have even had an interview here at St. Thomas. They wouldn't even, they would have looked at my CV and be like, this guy can't come here, mm-hmm. right? So that's my outlook, man, is just keep as many doors open as you can, like water flowing through rocks, right? You put a big boulder down the middle of the stream, water's gonna then flow away. around. It's gonna fly away. Like you moving through life is like you going downstream and water, right? I 
the outlook I want is I want to keep as many doors open as I possibly can. And that's hopefully going to lead me down a road that, um, you know, 30, 40, 50 years from now, I'm going to be proud of. Yeah. So. And I think with the water analogy, uh, life's already going to put those big rocks in your way, yeah, regardless yeah. of what yeah. you do. So what what are you doing throwing rocks in your own way? So yeah. just trying to keep that stream open. Yeah. And something else that I, I thought was interesting, I think it's from the art of war, but it's talking about the whole focus on mitigate your weaknesses where mm. you might have not have been the, the strongest student. You, you had a skill set in there, but it wasn't like the 4.0, the mm-hmm. person that is all about that. And using your strengths, which was creating that connection with that uh, professor, creating that connection with everybody around you and being able to use that strength while mitigating your weaknesses yeah. to your advantage. You know, everything in the exercise science realm has to deal with high levels of communication skills. Physical therapy, occupational therapy, chiropractic, medicine, athletic training, strength and conditioning. You're talking to people all day long. Yeah. You know what I mean? So um, you have to be an effective communicator. You know, you have to have the ability to walk up to someone, think of like an interview, look him in the eye, shake his or her hand, you know, have good charisma and presence about you. You know, you know that, that people are drawn to, you know, charismatic people and I'm not saying you have to force it but like doing things the right way carrying yourself in, a, in, in the right way I think can be very beneficial and uh, you know like with coaching you know if, if you're a poor communicator Game what over. are you doing yeah. you know what I mean and then same thing with teaching you know you can't be the little introvert there in the corner of the room standing behind the podium just you know crumpled down poor posture students can see right through that yeah. like this person looks terrified to be in this room right and if you look back at some of the best professors you had I bet you they had just a presence and an aura about them that you were just man like oh, this person really knows their stuff and, and their delivery and, and I'm learning all these things you know that I can apply to my field you know what I mean we've all been in those classes even there you know the professor was great but you just didn't have a lot of interest in the topic you know what I mean? Um, like, I can think back. I, I was in a Spanish class in college, and, and while I should definitely learn a foreign language, I was like, man, I just, I'm not interested in this. The professor seems great. But if you don't have an interest in the topic, you know, it's kind of tough. Which is, I I love that point there because I was, I was going to use Spanish as mine. And mm. the difference between Spanish and, let's say, something like theology or philosophy that we are required to take at St. Thomas, yeah. whereas in Spanish, when I took it, the teacher never made that connection mm. with us to this is going to help you going forward. This is going to help yeah. you in your skill set where philosophy, just looking on the philosophy class here, looking on the base level, looking at what the course curriculum is, zero interest in that. Mm. It's probably not going to help going forward. But what the professor did in that class really well and what made us love the class was he communicated with each person and made that connection. This is going to help you in your life. This is going to help you communicate. This is going to help you reason. Maybe as a strength coach, this is going to help you reason and solve this problem. And that was the big difference between the two is both on the surface level had no connection to what you want to do in your passions. But if you dig just a little bit deeper and you're able to make that connection with the professor yeah one had an awesome effect on what i'm able to do and one i really didn't enjoy Mm. it's like physics too is probably the hardest the second physics course the general physics probably the hardest course i took during my undergrad probably rivaled with the second general chemistry right and i have a lot of my students that talk about man i don't i'm worried about taking this class and because it's electricity it's magnetism it's stuff going through breakers and i tell them think about it like a force plate 
right? That's how force plates work. So like try to take something in like if you're in a challenging class and you're like, I can't relate it. Find something to relate it to what's interesting to you. Yeah. You know what I mean? And uh, like you said with the philosophy class, like being able to, we just talked about how we need to be effective communicators in this field. In this large umbrella of the exercise science realm, you have to be a good communicator. So, you know, Take to, being able to take things that don't necessarily seem that I don't need to use this. Try to find a way to integrate it into something that you can learn from and, and apply it to something. Yeah. And the, the book I'm reading right now is The Governing Dynamics of Coaching. Mm-hmm. Um, it's by James Smith. And how he kind of is going about changing the strength conditioning field and all coaching in general is he's taking all the principles from physics and music and applying them to the strength conditioning field. And one of the really cool parts in the book he talks about is the underlying thing that unifies everything in sports. And in music, it's the 12 notes. So there's 12 mm-hmm. notes that make up almost every song he was saying and trying to apply that to the field of sport, which I thought was, again, that outside perspective of if you're globally trying to look at different things and learn from everything, you're going to be able to pull that back to your specific field where if you become just so rabbit holed in your specific field, I don't think that blossoms into knowing everything about life. So that's that's been something that I've been trying to attack. And I, I talked about with Jake Tura of trying to find knowledge from other parts of life and bringing mm-hmm. it to our field rather than diving super deep into our field and not being able to apply to our full life. It's interesting. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I know, um, you know, I like to, I like to learn. And if there's any students in on listening on this in their in their undergrad, I actually while the coursework and stuff was more difficult in graduate school, I enjoyed it so much more because then, it, like for example, if you take an exercise physiology course, you might spend two days on environmental physiology, scuba diving, altitude cold exposure, whatever. In grad school, you take a whole 16-week course just on that topic. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, and then you're looking at 60 course credits throughout. So, you know, that's one thing. If, if there's anybody out there that's a little worried about going into graduate school, it's, it's, it's difficult. Yeah, grad school's hard. It's supposed to be hard, <laughs> you know. But, uh, you know, you're starting. It's more specialized, you know. Like, think of, like, a high school education, like a circle. You take a little bit of math. You take a little bit of, you know, science, a little bit of English, a little bit of reading. Then you go to college, right? You're still doing a little bit of math, reading, literature, all that, but you're starting to specialize there a little bit more. Then you go to grad school and you do your PhD and it turns into like a needle. You went from that general knowledge circle to basically like a pointy needle. Yep. So you know a lot about this one little topic. So you think you know a lot. And then one thing I've learned, the longer I'm in higher academia, I don't really know a lot. <laughs> you know a ton <laughs> you, about that needle. No, uh, yeah, you know, like it's, it. you really learn about what you don't know in grad school. Mm-hmm. Like once you finish up, like, man, there's like so much knowledge out there. You know, like you know a lot about one topic, right? Well, think of um, a professor at 30, like 30 years old, like now versus what I'll know at 60. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like that comes with someone like yourself, like a young strength conditioning coach, like what you do well and I see you all the time is you're always reading stuff. You know, I think that's what makes you special in the strength conditioning realm is you're always educating yourself versus a lot of times what I think is problematic that we were going to get into with with uh, some of these coaches, like sport specific coaches. You know, they I here's a good analogy. When I was in high school, pitchers the next day had to come in and run. Mm-hmm. All right. So if you throw 80 pitches, you had to run 10 foul poles. So foul pole to foul pole, right? And do you know why we had to do, why, who at the time, my baseball coach who played professionally, <laughs> professional baseball player, why we were doing that? We were being told we were flushing out the lactate from yesterday's uh, game. Yep. Well, as you know, lactate's been gone for 23 and a half hours. Mm-hmm. But what the coach knows 
is running, helps in recovery. It's not flushing out lactate, it's blood flow. Blood flow to the injured site is going to increase recovery, right? Well, why is he saying that? Because his coach told him that. Probably because his coach's coach said that, right? So sometimes in the coaching realm, this happens with strength conditioning realm too. You know, like I did an internship under someone I look look up to, and they do this the right way or this way, and I'm just going to do this. Yeah. And I'm gonna I'm not going to read uh, research, right? Because um, it's intimidating, scary looking, and they use big words or whatever. Or it might challenge my initial thought oh, process, right? and I'd you, rather be comfortable. Yeah, you're supposed to only power clean and do you know hex bar jumps. That's <laughs> what you're supposed to do, right? Yep. Bra jumping is bad. Stretching before competition's bad, right? So yeah, you're spot on. Like a lot of times, if you're not reading and staying up to date on things, you know you're 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 a dinosaur, man. You're ancient. Mm-hmm. You know, like the what the advances in technology has done is it's just caused a snowball effect, especially in the exercise science realm. Like there were no motion capture cameras, you know, 20 years ago. Like we're able to quantify things from the technology that we have now and implement it in a strength and conditioning. Now I'll say I'm not an expert in that area, but I can tell you with the advances in technology that have come, you know, old school knowledge is irrelevant now. Yeah. Now there's some stuff that, as you know, in strength conditioning, like, you know, this is one thing that's tough for me as an academic to get into and talk with coaches and strength conditioning coaches. And this, this is one thing I love about my relationship with our head guy, Stuart Bourne, is he's all about coming up and us jumping on force plates and collecting uh, EMG data and all that stuff on his athletes. As Stu sees it, he's not trying to like tunnel vision with his training. He's like, oh, you guys have this expertise and using this technology? Let's implement it with our athletes. So we were looking at uh, rate of force development with the hockey team. All right. We've been doing DEXA scans on the cross-country runners preseason, and we're going to do them postseason, too, to see if their training programs, if they're just hitting the ground too much. Yeah. Every time that runner hits the ground, that's impact force coming all the way up. Right. So if I can take that knowledge and go to the track coach and be like, hey, their bones are getting stronger. Great job. Keep the volume where it is. Or like, hey, man, the, their bone density is dropping. They're getting hurt more, right? So a lot of times that scares coaches. You know, who? first off, who are you, you know, you know, take the glasses, push them up on your face, nerdy guy coming in here telling me my programming's not work. Yeah. You know, so finding that balance of, you know, me trying to come in from my sport background and, you know, I'm a certified strength conditioning specialist and I have been since May 2013 teaching these courses. You know, the primary courses I teach here are structural kinesiology, biomechanics, and strength conditioning, you know, and, and I'm always, re- you know, I just got a new biomechanics book, just came out this year on my book. There's new research in the textbook that I'm going to be reading about. You know, if I can take that, that stuff and break into the coaching world like hey let me help you i'm not here to try to tell you your programming's bad i'm here to just give you data and give you quantifiable evidence and then you take it as it is yeah well, and i think that's on both ends trying to shut off the ego oh my goodness of, i i don't want to be proved wrong and this person upstairs like they're, they're trying to take my job they're trying to do these yeah. things where if you need to look at it, shut down your ego and use all your tools for all your athletes. Yeah, I'll give you an example here, man, and I'm not going to name the sport or the coach, but I reached out to a coach here and was like, hey, I have a background in this sport. Uh, you know, I have a PhD in the exercise science realm. Uh, specifically, I deal with biomechanical advantages here. You guys use levers in your sport, and I'm a certified strength conditioning coach. I'd love to just meet up, have a beer, and talk. 
and this individual is like, yeah, sounds great, and crickets, right? So just like, the, you know, I'm not coming in here to try to attack you or take your job. I'm trying to help your athletes, yeah. you know, and like sometimes that's difficult is is finding that, you know, you know what, what we're actually doing as a department is we have uh, Dr. Paul Mellick, one of his job roles here is to try to integrate athletics and academics in this department. And with us going Division One, you know, if we could just have a relationship where you and Stu and Jim, the athletic trainer and the coaches, you know, and us as the, the faculty that have backgrounds in it, if we could just come into collaboration, you know, dropping the egos, like you said, and like, hey, let's just get in a room, think, look, evaluate, observe, and implement changes, you know, it, good things will happen. Yeah. And that's, again, going back to that book, the whole point is to unify everything because yeah. our goal, if we keep our goal to goal, it's it's to get the athlete from point A to point B. It's, it's not to necessarily advance our careers. It's not to push our curriculum. It's to get the athlete from point A to point B. Mm. How can we do that with all the tools that we use? One of the things um, that in the book that they mentioned, which I thought was interesting here is the segregation. And it, it's really, it's, it's bad here. And the way that it talked about it is, the top guys are always on the top floor of the building. Mm. The the academics are always on the middle floor of the building. And at the basement level is where the, the work's actually going on. Yeah. And he talked about even tiny segregations like that are huge because it breaks off that communication by a level of floor. Absolutely. And so I, th- I thought that was just something interesting to how going forward, and I think it's been getting better the past three years with how you guys are going about it in the academic world is trying to integrate it with our athletes and Absolutely. going forward. And we'll, we'll for sure dive into that a little bit later, but I, that was a, I love that point. Yeah, absolutely. Sweet. So now, now the point in the podcast where we transition into kind of the journey and mindset. So mm-hmm. they see where you're at now. They, they, they see you as a professor. They see you having the PhD and having a confidence to communicate and mm-hmm. having all these points, but, and almost having life figured out and knowing what you want to do to where you were talking about how you didn't know what you want to do earlier in life, but they, they don't see the mountain that it took to get there. Uh, this is some, one thing that I really, really like to emphasize is the, there's no overnight success mm. and lo- success doesn't just happen because some luck, it's always work and it's always like keeping those doors open. So what is a mountain that you had to climb to get to where you're at now? And what were some of the things that you learned from this journey? Absolutely. So again, Austin, what, what I really struggled with when I was younger was trying to figure out what I was passionate about. So yeah, I knew I liked to be the gym bro, go and push a lot of what's your bench press. You like get in there to lift heavy weight, all that great stuff. But I really didn't have a lot of figure out from an occupational perspective what I was passionate about. Now, I, Austin, I got I got lucky. I like to think of this combination of luck and hard work. All right, I, I was in the right place at the right time. If I wouldn't have, look at it this way, if I would have had a different professor at the University of Alabama, if I wouldn't have had that professor. Would be sitting? Would we be sitting here right now? Probably not. Probably not. So there's the luck part. But when the opportunity came, I was a little uncomfortable with it. Like, do do I do this? Do I not? And I got I had some advice I like, and I tell my. Um, uh, so we'll get into it later, but um, we do a lot of testing with uh, elderly, what we call them athletes, because we lift them and jump them, all that great stuff. And when they come in really nervous about our programming, I tell them, you need to start getting comfortable being uncomfortable. Okay, so goes back to the opening and closing doors thing, right? So it's like, I'm going to dabble in this and see if I like this. And if I don't, like I told you about when I was doing the strength conditioning internship, I was like, this is nice. I don't think this is what my passion is going to be. But if you're not trying to, if you're in that realm and you're like, I want to go be a surgeon, 
boom, more power to you, you figured it out. Yep. But when I wasn't in that realm, I was having to test out different things. Well, maybe I want to look into PT. Maybe I want to look into athletic training. Maybe I want to look into strength conditioning, right? And it took me a long time to figure out what I was going to be passionate about. And it turned out to be peach teaching specifically in college, right? The problem is you got to go five years in graduate school. You have no money. Right? You're, you're Luckily, you're not running up any student debt with the, with tuition and stuff. Uh, so if you folks out there looking at going to grad school, like definitely look into some te- uh, teaching assistant positions. Um, but it was a grind, man. And one things that I started to do, and, and I what I think I do decently well is I'm a very organized and structured person. I eat the same thing for breakfast every morning, man. <laughs> like every now and then the wife will make something different and it tastes great. But like when I'm on my own, like I'm a steak and potatoes and a salad guy for dinner and eggs and uh, turkey sausage links for breakfast. You know, I'm very structured and oriented. And I started to learn that in graduate school, like having a routine. Um, I can't remember the last time I've missed the day in the gym on a Monday. That's one thing for me too. It's like, like get, get your Monday lift in. All right. Um, you know, get, spend time in the gym, make time. Cause if you're not investing in your body, you know, how are you going to be able to impact other people mm-hmm. and like perform, to, whether it's in sport or profession, if you're not investing time into your body and whether it's mental, physical, spiritual, uh, whatever it is, if you're not investing in yourself, how can you invest into someone someone else or something else? Yeah, if your so, water cup is empty, you have um, nothing to give Exactly, them. right? Yeah. So that's one thing that I started to really hone in in graduate school when I was, we were talking about when I was hitting that 25 range, I'm like, do I want to do this? And I was like, yes, I do. I'm going to power through. And, the, you know, one of my favorite books will bring it bring in here, Extreme Ownership, Jocko, right? And it's prioritize and execute. That's, that's all that is, right? I have X things I need to do today. Wake up. Okay, I'm gonna do this. Boom, boom, boom. I'm gonna eat lunch. I'm gonna get my lift in. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna send off some emails. I'm gonna go home. I'm gonna exercise the dog. I'm gonna play drums because that's my outlet, the gym, and you know, beating the hell out of a drum set to Breaking Benjamin again can really get you going. Yeah. You know, and then you have my dinner, and then you know, I'm kick the shoes off. You know, watch a little bit of TV and, and head off to sleep. You know what I mean? So like learning how to be really structured. Yeah. Number one, finding finding a passion, which is hard because if you don't have it, my advice is you start dabbling in different things. Right. Start do a little bit of this. Do a little shadowing here. Right. Problem is those things aren't usually paid. <laughs> right. But try to find something you're passionate about. Once you're passionate, you find it. Work really hard. And my advice to you is to get structure and routine. Invest in yourself. Work hard. Do your job, and just push through, man. And you know, and and it, for me, sample size of one, as we say in research, it's worked pretty well so far. Yeah. Uh, so one of our biggest our biggest mantras at St. Thomas for the football team is opportunity loss is never regained. Mm. I think that's something that you are crushing right now. Is you always made sure when that opportunity presented itself, and you weren't sure what that opportunity was. It, yeah. it, it could have been something from here. Could have been something. Could have been that phone call from that professor yeah but when that opportunity came you made sure to take advantage of it because you never know if that opportunity is ever going to come again so yeah. i think that's awesome is making sure that you are on a path that because again not everybody knows what they're passionate about mm. uh, I, to me that that works itself out eventually what you can do right now what you can control is making sure you're on the path you have that order in your life mm. you're working out on the mondays you're doing the things that when something big like that presents itself you are ready because yeah. if you're not then you're gonna have to wait again and be in that chaos of not knowing when the next thing's going to happen you got to keep your eyes open man yeah and you 
like I said, you need to start getting comfortable at times being uncomfortable. Like, you know, uh, I don't know if I'm really going to like this, but, you know, maybe I will. You know, keep your eyes open for opportunities. And that's what I say going back into uh, undergrad and grad school, like volunteer for things. Say yes to things. It's that cheesy uh, uh, Yes Man movie with, uh, what's his name from Dumb and Dumber? (laughs) Uh, irrelevant, but like the point of the premise of the movie is like say yes to things, mm-hmm. do do things that kind of get you in the realm of getting different experiences with things. Because then once you find something you're passionate about, you know what you can now work really hard to obtain. So mindset wise, this is something that I'm kind of interested in. When you are starting to feel uncomfortable, you're starting to, and maybe it was past, maybe you don't have that feeling anymore, but you're starting to put yourself in a new spot. Salsa dancing with the wife, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. So (laughs) when you do that, is there something in your head that you reframe it as so like you're getting that feeling of anxiousness, that uncomfortable ability. Is there something that in your head you're like, all right, I just got to push through this. What's that mindset like so, for you? Yeah, you know, I'll be honest. I haven't had a lot of thought into that, but I think some the way that looking back is like all things that kind of make you uncomfortable in time will kind of come to an end. Yeah. And you and I'm a big believer. Us as humans in general, we evolve. You know, like looking strength conditioning. Like if you make me run a lot. I'm going to adapt. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, if you give me a stressor to something, people as humans, we're going to adapt to it. So, you know, that's that's kind of my thought on that. You know, and, and it's like applied in the strength conditioning realm. It's it's the said principle, right? Specific adaptations that oppose demands. If I do salsa enough with the wife, eventually I'm going to have decent salsa moves. But, you know, uh, it's just something I would say I'm not passionate about, so I'm not putting a lot of work into it, mm-hmm. right? Versus I'm very passionate about playing drums. And I'm a self-taught drummer, and my neighbors, I'm sure love me but uh you know but uh you know I'm passionate about a couple things in my life uh teaching gym routines drums I don't have a lot of hobbies hiking being outdoors like I can think of like five six hobbies that I have and but I do I invest a lot of effort and time into those things yeah the the, the stressor to adaptation thing is something that I love because as a strength conditioning nerd anytime I feel that I th- it triggers that in my head, that thought process of, mm-hmm. all right, this this is going to make me stronger. This is going to make yeah. me better. So I love that you mentioned that point of it's always going to lead to an adaptation and just keeping that optimistic mindset in your head, mm-hmm. you know, like what we're going through now is eventually going to lead to something greater. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people get bogged down in losing sight of that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, don't know. I couldn't, couldn't really expand too much more on it, man. I think you're pretty spot on there. Sweet. This is the point in the podcast where we'll transition into your expertise. And something that I we mentioned a little bit, but I really want to dive into how can we use what you're doing in a classroom with our athletes or as a strength coach if we have professors that we don't have a connection with what are things that we could go to you to ask and use and go forward with our athletes i think with with anybody working in athletics or rehabilitation science you have to have a strong understanding of anatomy it's the basis starts there Mm -hmm. so one of the courses that i teach here is is kinesiology and a lot of times people put that in a very broad course but it's actually not it's basically how you move from an anatomical perspective so if you don't understand origin and insertions from muscles you're going to have a lot of difficulty understanding and breaking down the movement needs in a sport and then prescribing certain movements, right? So then you progress on into the biomechanical realm, which is think of kinesiology, how you move from a structural perspective, anatomical way, mechanical, think of how you how physics implements on you and works on you and how you move from a mechanical perspective. So 
as a strength conditioning coach, I think you really have to have a strong background in that in that field because and and think if you cannot break down basic movements and understand which muscles are being recruited and fired, um, you're not going to be very good at prescribing different routines. The second one that I think is incredibly important for strength conditioning coaches, PT, athletic trainer, so on and so forth, and I think is actually one of the weak points is an understanding of bioenergetics. Okay, so if I have you go run 100 yards, if I watch Hussein Bolt run 100 meters, he's actually slowing down when he crosses the finish line. Yep. He has depleted his ATP PC energy system, right? So if you go down into the weight room setting, let's say, and I'm going to do uh, five by five on the back squat, but I'm on three minute rest periods, you know, great. If I'm doing a three by 10 in a hypertrophy season and I'm still on three minute rest periods, you have defeated the process of a hypertrophy style lifting routine. So understanding the bioenergetic realm. The third, understanding movement planes and axes of rotation. So if you look at a sprinter, right, um, they are moving sagittal plane, right, axis rotation coming from left to right, right. So I am now going to prescribe the primary amount of my movements in the weight room setting and the training setting to get my athlete moving well that way. Now, I'm not saying you don't have them go laterally and rotationally. Like, I'm a big believer as a human in general, you need to have a strong basis in the entire kinetic chain. Because uh, if you have a weak spot, as we talked, you're going to get exposed. We yep. talked about it yesterday in the weight room with that you know, five minutes uh, static <laughs> squat hold, right? Yep. Yeah. But again, doing lateral med ball throws probably isn't where I need to put a lot of my effort with my straight line sprinter. You know what I mean? This is why I think soccer athletes are some of the best athletes on the planet. Because think about it, man. They're going straight, back, laterally, rotation. They're going to sprint. They're going to walk. They're going to jog. Sprint, sprint, walk, jog. Right? And then my joke is fake a fall. Right? (laughs) Get that red card. Right? So, again, they're having an understanding of the structural anatomy, how the physics implements on the body, having an understanding of bioenergetics, and then having an understanding of planes of motion and actually use a rotation, I think is key for what strength conditioning coaches do. Gotcha. And with the connection between the two two worlds, so we have the academic world and we have the strength conditioning world. We have people working with athletes and we have people doing the research and studying. Mm-hmm. What do you what do you think the best way to connect these two? Do you think they're always together? What yeah. how do you Journal think we, clubs. we go about that? Journal clubs. How fun would it be for you and I every Friday? One of us is going to every Friday, it's my my Friday is the first and third, yours is second and fourth. And you, me, Stuart Bourne, Paul Mellick, Brett Brunix, right? We each bring one article or something and we just talk like fresh off the press stuff, like 2020 published stuff. Um, we'll pull articles from the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research. We'll pull article from, you know, Journal of Biomechanics, Sport Biomechanics, whatever. And we're just going to brief each other. Like, you're going to spend five minutes and you're going to ele- basically ele- elevator speech what the article found. And we'll just chit-chat with, you know, is that something we can implement? Is that something that we think just because something's published doesn't mean it's the best thing. Mm-hmm. That just means it's been peer-reviewed. Yeah. And other professors have agreed that it's deemed worthy of publication. For sure. You know, I'm not downstairs doing programming with your athletes and knowing what works, but you do. But I know 
that's, you know, in theory, the science behind it, right? So if we could just get in a room and just have a 45-minute journal club every Friday, you know, I think that'd be a great starting point. Uh, I actually did that at the training house last summer. Um, two biomechanists over there, two student interns, a chiropractor, and myself spent 45 minutes breaking down an article. It was on uh, post-activation potentiation yep. after different side of stimu- simulations on, like, angles of the hip. They were looking at EMG and force production, right? And then we're like, huh, does this, does this something you think we can implement with the athletes over there at the training house? So, you know, a lot of times some of these training conditioning coaches don't have backgrounds in reading big in-depth research articles. But us academics here don't have a lot of time doing prescription and programming with athletes, yeah. right? So you're like blending that into a room. You're bouncing ideas off each other. And, you know, I think a lot of good things can come out of that. Yeah, that's a, There's so many good points there talking about keeping the communication open, which I think is number one. De- developing that relationship, regardless if, if we agree on everything, if we can talk about why we don't agree, both of us are going to get better in that regard. We're going to figure yeah. out why we don't agree. Because if we don't agree about something, there's something there. Yeah. There's something that we have, one of us doesn't understand that we can get to. And then second point, I think it goes back to the, the mitigate your weaknesses. Like my passion is in communicating with athletes and mm. the psychology and what makes an athlete tick and how can I prescribe them stuff to make them better athletes and better humans. Mm-hmm. It, it's really not about diving in deep into the research. I know I have to do that to get better, but is that something where I can use your skill set and your strength yeah. to have mitigate one of my weaknesses? And yeah. maybe I'm using my strength, which is communicating with the athlete, which you do a good job with as well, but just something like that to where I'm yeah. using things all, that you're getting. Not all me. academics do, though. You, that, you and know? that's what I was, yeah. You know, and also, too, I go down there and talk with this football player. He's going to look at me like, who are you? Yeah. I had an athlete come up the other day. He's like, hey, are you that squat professor? <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, <laughs> I've been called worse things, you know. But, uh, yeah, you're spot on, you know, is. Um, you know, like I've already complimented you already, but you know, you do a lot of reading, right? That's great. A lot of 20, what are you, 24? 23. 23 year old, you know, practicing strength conditioning coaches aren't. They're doing whatever they saw in the clinic or in the weight room, yeah. right? Or what they saw in their internship, right? So, you know, it goes back to that being comfortable about getting comfortable being uncomfortable. I don't, this, look, I remember the first time I read a journal article. It looked like it was written in Russian. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'll tell you, and the reason this is kind of funny, at least I think it is, in the research methods course I teach, I show the paper that was the first paper I wrote during my master's degree. Okay. So when you finish with a bachelor's degree, I thought I was the smartest guy in the world. (laughs) When I graduated with my master's, I was like, I kind of know things. You finish your doctorate, you realize you don't really know anything. That was kind of my flow chart here, right? So that first paper I wrote in my master's, uh, during my master's degree, it looked like that professor opened up the red pen and just started flinging red paint on it. It was chopped up. Now, here's the funny thing. His name is uh, Dr. Eric O'Neill, still teaching at the University of North Alabama. I went. He actually tells this, stu- this story six whatever years later. He tells the story. I have to go barging into his office. <laughs> the arrogance I had there. Think about this. Like, what the hell's wrong with you? What is your problem with me? Right? Because I got a bachelor's degree. I know how to write papers. You know, and uh, you know he had to calm me down. And he said a piece of advice that is so true. He's like, save all your papers for the first couple of years in grad school, and go back and read them five years later and look at them. And I did it, Austin. When I finished my, my, in about 2017, I went back and looked about four years prior to the original papers. And it was so bad. <laughs> and I'm not knocking anybody out there that's got a bachelor's degree that writes. You know, maybe you're a lot better than I was, but it was so bad. And Austin, I'm not even that great of a writer. 
you know, 10 years from now, I'm going to be a lot better than I'm 40. I'm going to be better than 30. Just like at 30, I was better when I was 23. Right. So, you know, that's, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's something that, you know, just it's the old 10,000 hour rule from outliers we talked about, you know, like the more time you're doing things, the better at it you're going to be set principle, man. Well, that's something that we, we talk about a lot is if in a year you don't look back on who you were a year ago and are embarrassed with that, you haven't yeah, grown enough. Exactly. Like if you were comfortable with who you were a year ago today, yeah, that, that's not where you want to be in that year. That should be a red flag. I tell you, that's one thing like in um, in education that I in higher education I think is actually can be a little problematic. Uh, there are many good things about tenure. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, I watched a real sports episode uh, a couple years ago. Rutgers, uh, Rutgers University, two economics professors published a paper and were on HBO talking about how stupid it is to have college athletics from a financial perspective. Mm -hmm. There's only like 10 or 12 universities in the country that make money from athletics. Alabama, Florida, Notre Dame, right? Usually it's the big football schools. And what they were doing is they were talking about from an economics perspective, it's not good to have college athletics. They can't do that not tenured. You know, like there's – look at the Jordan Peterson thing. You know, like how much pushback he's had. He'd be gone out of there in a heartbeat in theory, right? You'd think, right? But the downside is – or do you continue to grow? You get tenure, you in theory have a job for as long as the university doesn't close, like you have a job. Are you still continuing to grow? And that's one thing that I'm starting to do with my life the past year I started doing is every summer I want to learn something different. This summer it was jujitsu. So I did a couple roles in jujitsu and was like, this is cool, but yeah, whatever, <laughs> right? But I tried something new. Yeah. Next summer it's golf. Oh. I'm going to pick up golf. Now, I'm an ex-baseball guy. I've been in the driving range. I slice everything because I open those hips up, right? You know, and then in the summer 2021, I'm going to figure out something else. The beauty of, of my job is we work nine months a year in theory, right? Yep. Um, you know, summers typically are off for academics. Um, you know, you're still doing research stuff, but you're not necessarily teaching, right? So I got time. So that's one thing that I want to do with my life. Uh, moving forward, a goal of mine is every summer, try to learn, not necessarily learn, because I didn't learn jiu-jitsu. I just tried it. I rolled three times and got humbled fast. <laughs> you know, I got a 350-pound bench press, right? I got a 150-pound guy on top of me. I can't get him off of me, right? Humbled, quick, right? So this summer, it's going to be golf, and then next summer, I'll try to figure out something else. So uh, I, I love that point, because that's, that's something that I've realized in my personal life is the global growth of you as a human is going to help with the specific growth in your sport. Rolling with jiu-jitsu is going to give you a different perspective to be able to come up and teach in front of everybody with a different mindset Mm -hmm. or being able to relate with different people, a different confidence, something like that. So that's definitely something that I've been pushing for is how can I grow myself as a human in different regards? Doing Mm -hmm. the very similar type of things is trying out new things like the salsa dancing specifically maybe won't make you a better teacher, but it's going to make you a better human. That's going to give you a different mindset of now I have the confidence. Maybe I have an understanding of we're teaching a dance or something in those regards. Or an appreciation for how difficult something can be. Yeah. Right? So, you know, you know, if you think yourself as a confident athletic guy or gal out there, you know, you can get humbled fast doing things that you're not comfortable doing. 100%. You know what I mean? Like, I, I knew I was going to get smoked in jiu-jitsu. I knew it. But I didn't know how bad. I mean, you know... I, I'm a 195-pound guy, that decently sized, you know, and I got this 45-year-old, like, art, I talked to him about, like, art designer or something. Like, he, like, painted or something. Like, nothing from, like, a athletic occupation, right? 
big beard, you know, like why, like not, didn't look physically imposing, just smoked me, man. And I knew I was going to get beat. I didn't realize how bad I was going to get beat at it. You know, salsa dancing, it's hard, right? So like doing different things, like, well, that doesn't carry over to me directly teaching, but it does have me appreciate how challenging, like how talent, here's a good one, how talented other people are. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like uh, one of my idols is Blink-182's drummer. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Travis Barker. Yep. Uh, the wife and I saw him play at Excel Center a couple months ago, and we had good enough seats where you could really appreciate how good he is, how fast he is, how rhythmic he can be. He's the equivalent of LeBron James of drumming. LeBron James was put on this earth to play basketball. Yeah. Okay. So I tell all my students, I ask my students all the time, are athletes born or made? The answer is both. If LeBron James was born like this, what's saying he wouldn't have had a passion in like learning to play the violin and he wouldn't ever play basketball. So he's born and he works really, really hard, right? Travis Barker's the same way, all right? And he, I guarantee you, Travis Barker is predisposed to be really good at drums. Yeah. Okay, I will bet you his wingspan is longer than his height. Just like basketball players, from what I've heard, the average basketball player is six foot six. Their wingspan is seven foot two. That's not normal, right? Mm -hmm. Well, why is it good for a drummer to have long arms? Well, angular kinematics. They can cover more distance with less exertion, right? So, like, that man was put on this planet to play drums, right? So, point being is back to the salsa thing. Well, like, ooh, where's he going here? Ooh, butterfly. Um, back to the salsa thing, doing things and exposing to different things can have give you an appreciation for how difficult and how talented other people are at what they do. Yeah, I love that. Last thing on the biomechanics part. What is something in the research that is new to you or that you're reading about right now that you think strength conditioning coaches can take yeah. or should just be aware of yeah. going forward that you think they're going to yeah. use? Yeah, so under, understanding torques, I think, is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to be doing a talk on that on the 25th of the coaching clinic. You know, I think a lot of times people really don't have a firm understanding of torque. Okay. And a, and a way to simplistically put this is what's the best way to carry groceries? Is it in your hands? No, because your wrist flexors go out way faster, right? It's on your arm here, right? Where do you hold it? You slide the bags as close as you can to the axis of rotation because when your groceries are here, right here close to your elbow, the weight didn't change, but the internal force required to hold them isometrically drops. Now slide those groceries distally more towards your fingertips. Well, the weight of the groceries did not change, okay? You're a very, very strong guy, okay? But I guarantee if I lay you on that training table on your stomach, and I take my two fingers and I put them on the backside of your heel and I say, do knee flexion, meaning kick your foot to your butt. I can just take my fingers and put it on your heel. You're not gonna move. It's because I've placed force on you very far away from your knee, which is considered the axis of rotation. So having a good understanding of that can really, you can now put an external load on your athletes with not like a ton of weight on the back squat bar. Yeah. You know, so understanding, the internal force required to combat the external force, which in that example, your hamstrings have to create an internal force to overcome the external force of my hand on your heel, right? So that's one thing I think strength conditioning coaches um, can really 
excel at is if you really have a good understanding of like torques and forces on the body and you can you can do a lot of da- good damage to your athletes and and we talk like we've talked in the weight room all the time like you talked to, on the one podcast about mixing it up in the weight room like oh the athlete loses interest oh, i gotta go in here and bench press today i gotta go in here and squat today well yeah that's great but you know doing different things is going to keep your athlete motivated and fresh and stuff like that so if you have a good understanding of force application you can then manipulate certain and lifts and that's one thing I see you do very well down in the weight room you know you can manipulate this stuff and you know impose good demands on these athletes number one number two is where it's going so we just um, got a motion capture system here at the University of St. Thomas and what this motion capture system does is it integrates in with force plates and electromyography and it allows us to get joint kinematics which is something moving like range of motion is your knee doing varus or valgus how much dorsal or plantar flexion are you doing so joint kinematics joint kinetics which is causes of force so torques so internal force and then I can integrate that in with you know where your center of gravity is standing on the force plate that's great Okay. This is a clinical setting, right? Where it's going though, Austin, I don't know how long, maybe 10 years from now, is they're going to put these cameras in every single professional sports stadium. Mm -hmm. And I don't need markers anymore. Because if you've ever seen how video games are made, this is what we have here. I put a marker on, on, on your body. I tell the computer software where the marker is. You're standing on a force plate and now, boom, I can figure out how your body's moving. Where it's going is it's markerless. The cameras know where your joint is. What's the point? I can now learn injury, mechanisms of injury. I can get the instant, the ACL tears. Yeah. And then I can use that in a training modality of like, well, the ACL generally goes, the ACL is generally under, under tension from zero to 30 degrees of knee flexion. You're usually internally rotated at the femur and you have adduction or valgus. That's the mechanism of injury usually on the ACL, okay, for non-contact at least. Um, If I can understand injury, mechanism of injury in sport, you can now, what's the, hey man, what's the number one job of strength conditioning coach? Keep the person healthy. Keep them healthy. Big, strong, fast is great. I gotta keep them healthy, right? If I can understand how they're getting hurt, I can then implement strategies to reduce that risk. And I think that's where it's going. Something cool I think that's gonna be with that is they're also gonna be able to measure every single metric of volume and load placed on that athlete mm-hmm. during the sport itself and the practices. Oh man. And that's gonna become back to the unified aspect of a thing we struggle with right now is if we don't know how much load that athlete is getting on the field and then we get thrown into a weight room and there's that disconnect between the two, we're giving them high forces in the weight room, we're giving them high forces on the field. When are they recovering? Right. And are they overloaded? And then that's yep. going to lead to the injuries down the road. So You know, that's one thing that you touched on on one of your podcasts is, um, oh, I keep forgetting his name. Jake Dura. Jake, yeah, that's one thing you guys touched is if the coach is beating him up 40 hours a week, you're going to come in the weight room and take a nap. It doesn't, That's yeah. what we're going to do for you, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but one thing that that what and this isn't so much biomechanical uh, with a little bit of it, yeah, acceleration changes and, and sprint time and stuff like that. But we have here um, and a polar heart rate monitor system. And if you ever watch like University of Alabama and you know I'm a big Bama fan, football fan. Uh, um, if you ever watch them in spring practice and fall camp and summer, you watch their jerseys. They'll have a little red dot on the back on them. Okay, they're wearing a heart rate monitor that has a built-in accelerometer in it. Yep. So, and not only is it it measuring GPS, so I now know how far you've ran. I now know I can set it to where if you have an acceleration change of 2.5 meters per second squared, it's gonna count it. So I can now count how many sprints you've done. You jogging, 
That's tracking GPS. So your soccer, your jog, 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 sprint, 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 right? That counts as a sprint. So GPS, accelerations, heart rate. It then has an algorithm built where it, and remember, this is specifically on that athlete, 6'1", 230, yep. right? And it has an algorithm where it spits out what the workload was for that athlete. And this is where it's going. And the technology is going to be more and more accessible from a financial way. Yep. You can buy it, right? All the big programs. This has been going on in soccer for 10 years in Europe and Australia and stuff like that. It's starting to get bigger in, in football now. You've been a strength conditioning guy. What's the point? Well, the point is if you are, have that data and you're like, well, you know, Jimmy here had a workload 30% higher than anybody else. Jimmy should probably cut his lifting routine down a little bit this yeah. week in the weight room, right? So here's another good one. And this is where coaches in general have to be careful. Well, what if, you know, you have this uh, wide receiver that's generally just crushing it on the field. And in practice, you notice he's, you notice he's slowing down a little bit. Like, well, he's not giving good effort. Well, what if I pull the data from this system mm-hmm. and his heart rate is higher than his teammates and he's doing the same stuff? Hmm. Maybe he's a little – maybe he hadn't had slaves. girlfriend just broke up with him. Yeah. Maybe he hadn't been eating right. Maybe it's finals week, right? And he's not sleeping well, right? So – we talked about the cameras, right, for injury development, but this system, which is, you know, going to be more accessible to universities and colleges around the country, I can use this data to track my athlete's workload, all right? So you can go to the coach and be like, it's off-season. What's my job in the in the spring? I want my guys getting beefed up, bulked up, right? And if you're doing linear periodization, come summer, right, we're going to shift more power, sport development, right? Well, if you're looking at, like, this is in the MISO cycle where you're trying to beef them up a little bit, spend a lot of time in the weight room, but you're looking and you have the data and it's they're, they're doing all this stuff on the field, that's when you can go to the coach and be like, what do you want? You can't have the best of both worlds. Yeah. I can't get them big and strong and fast in here and then you go out here and do 40 hours of practice. You know, that's part of that job that you got to figure out. Like, you know, hey, if you go to the coach with data, hard data, I think they're, you're a lot easier to, you, you know. something to back it up yeah, with. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's, that's something that I wrote down here is, Going forward, your job as a strength coach, again, and it comes back to communication, is how do you use this data then? Yeah. Because it's not so much, it's going to go less to, and I think seeing these things as a coach is still going to always be important, but once you have the data actually back it up, you're not going to have to see the fatigue as much because you're going to have data through all of this. This athlete is looking like it's beat up. Now it comes down to what is your skill set as a load manager? Mm. How are you being able to communicate with the coach? How are you being able to use all this? And how are you able to find out where this load's coming from? Again, it could be girlfriend breaking up with them. Yeah. It could be they're not eating right. It could be because we're overloading them on the field. Or it could be what makes this athlete an elite level is he knows when to turn on and when to turn off. So what we think is lazy, if he's balling out on the field, maybe he just knows when he needs to sprint and when he doesn't. And that's what allows him to be a great athlete. You know, the, these great athletes... <laughs> Uh, so one of the labs I do, and I swear this on topic, we do different levels of depths and jumping. So maybe you're at 60, you know, 120 degrees of bend, 90, so on and so forth. All right, and you're on a force plate. We're getting force development, and we're getting um, how far are you squatting down, and we're measuring height, right, jump height. And there is an ideal level to squat down to jump high. You don't see the basketball team do a full squat, ass the grass, and then jump up, right? So we'll kind of, and I'll I'll do this on 12 people, and we'll run means and standard deviations, and we will figure out, like for that lab, the ideal depth jump. 
and then I'll look big picture because I'm talking about stretch shortening cycle and muscle length stuff like that and then I'll be like okay so are we going to go to LeBron James and go you need to be at 35 degree of knee flexion and you'll get some of them like well yeah I mean I'm like no he's jumped 10 million times in his life right these high level athletes know exactly what to do with like how to MacGyver their bodies and like like you said like I don't need to book it sprinting right now yeah you know what I mean like we all love that high effort guy or gal but you know like these high level athletes they know what they're doing and that's where I, I relate it to almost when I played sports is I was that high level guy because I had to be because I didn't have that skill set mm-hmm. you don't want 11 of me on your, on your football <laughs> yeah. field, you know like if you have that you're not scoring a lot of touchdowns yeah. you don't have this huge skill set great effort though great effort <laughs> lots, awesome of, team lots of coach, stars on that helmet <laughs> coach, coaches love that but what, what I try to communicate with coaches is a lot of times what makes that dude like what frustrates you about that guy is what is making him an amazing athlete mm-hmm. Guys, you, most of the time, ninety percent of the guy, guy, I just don't turn it off. And mm. that, but that's not the skill set. That's, that's not a, what's going to win you football games. Some usually. guys probably hated playing with you. Be give effort like Austin, right? Yeah. Like you know, some guys probably, yeah, man. That, but here's the thing, man. My dad was a coach for a long time, and I, I can promise you, he'd take twenty-two of you than the person that's the high-level athlete that he gets pissed for effort. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, and me, in me, and academically, give me the kid that. You know the 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 gal that the, the guy that struggles a little bit, but just grinds. You know, like some of the most memorable students, I, like from an only academic perspective, some of the most memorable ones I have. You know, finished with you know B B plus A minus or whatever, and they worked hard. They were always in my office doing practice problems, always asking for more help. And I, I'll take that student over you know the the high level that I never see. Like, cause I don't feel like I'm some of the students here at St. Thomas are so smart, man. I could literally go, here's the book, and we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna watch cat videos all semester, and they're gonna learn and ace all my tests. Like, yeah. I'm gonna still give them the exams, and they're still gonna make A's on them. And you know, others like I'm not. My point is, I'm not having an impact on them. You know what I mean? It's it's the ones that like I'm really having to help get through it and grind through it, man. I'll take that any day. Yeah. Well, I think that's gonna transition into our, our teaching now that you're talking about that because something I'm really interested in as a coach is some of the communication styles that you learn throughout the years as a teacher. And you have that kid that is sitting on his laptop, maybe don't on a laptop, sitting on his phone, or just yeah. sleeping during your class. And what is your way to create buy-in with you with your class, and yeah, how do you yeah, create yeah. that investment? I think number one is they have to believe in you as an educator. Okay. All right. So I'll give you an example. When I started teaching, um, you know, read some books on like develop uh, delivery styles and how to implement strategies and stuff. But the number one thing I did, Austin, was I looked back on what the best professors did that I had, and there were a couple things that I always saw. They were confident. And it's a fine line between arrogant and cocky, which I get called here from my students from time to time on the end of your evals, and confidence, right? That's something, that's one thing I've always struggled with, right? But you gotta have, if you don't have confidence in what you're teaching, how, you know, that, it shows. Mm-hmm. It shows, man. Passion. You gotta be passionate about what you're teaching, all right? So if I go, if I go over to the English department, no disrespect to that profession, but I, I'm not passionate about teaching, you know, vocabulary and stuff. I'm terrible at that, you know? So you have to have a great communication skills, too. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying you need to be the extrovert that's doing jumping jacks on the desk, like, look at me. No, I'm not saying that at all. But I think you need to have, you know, a little bit of charisma to you, a little bit of uh, you know, charisma and confidence and passion with it. Um, and you have to be educated, man, on the topic itself. I'm not saying you have to have the big postdoc PhD from Harvard, but, you know, 
Look, man, there are topics, I guarantee you got a bachelor's degree, I have a PhD. There are topics that you are way more educated on than me. And I'm humble enough to admit that, right? But if you're going to go in a classroom and teach, you need to be educated on what you're teaching. Yeah. I'm not saying you have to have the big degree in it. You need to be well-read and prepped, and you got to have your shit together, man. You can't go in there and just talk, right? Maybe you can in other sorts of, of courses, not in the exercise science realm, like in the higher education in general. In ours, we're a very science-heavy curriculum, you know? So, like, you need to be prepped, ready, you know? And, and one thing that... And I've really had to work on uh, in my in my time here. So I'm in year three, and um, one thing that I've really had to to figure out how to adjust is just the more soft approach. You know, I can be a pretty hard hard extreme guy time to time. And if you're familiar with imposter syndrome, is it's it's think of like I finished my PhD, I get this job at this pretty distinguished university, and I'm rubbing elbows with some pretty like high caliber faculty members you know and it's that feeling of like do I am I good enough to be here mm-hmm. that's imposter syndrome and maybe I had a little bit bit of that when I first got here maybe I was like being a little overbearing and a little like defensive like hey you're gonna listen to what I have to say and, and that's it I'm right all the time like dictatorship in the classroom right and maybe I had a little bit of that when I first got here and um, you know just work and you know seeing evaluations and rankings and stuff like that I've that's something that I've really had to, to change is, you know, trying to learn to be a little bit more empathetic. Uh, I read some leadership books and uh, charisma books. Like one thing I do in class, I never cross my arms ever. This comes off as a defensive posture. So when I'm teaching, I have big chest up, arms out, usually palms out. It comes off as more welcoming, some more inviting. So if you think of like, if, you know, if you're in coach, cause that's a little different in coaching. Teaching's a little different, you know, in which, which I think we're going to get into a little bit, but you know, I have to have the student buy into me. Yeah. You know, cause you've had classes, I'm sure where you're like, this person doesn't seem to want to even be here. Yeah. And it's a course I don't really even like, man, that's going to be a struggle bus of a class right there. Right. So there's that. I also try to hit all three learning styles. So visual learning, so you will see pictures and videos on screen, on the board, auditory, right? I don't just hand out slides and say, we're gonna see her quietly and I need you to read it. I'm talking about what you're seeing. And then I also have in note sheets that students have where they're writing in material. I don't hand out PowerPoint slides. Mm -hmm. What's the point, right? Coming and even coming here, right? So the aesthetic learners are writing, and in lab they're touching things, right? When I'm doing lecture based, auditory learners are hearing it, and my visual learners are seeing it, right? And then when you're teaching things, the best strategies that I think you can implement in the weight room setting, because this is the difference between teaching and coaching. You don't have time, Austin, go down there and go, I need you to do the movement like this, and I need you to do the drill like this, because the ATP C energy system lasts here, and if oxygen is present, you know, versus pyruvate here, you can't teach the Krebs cycle down there to a business major. Yeah. You know what I mean? You can't. That's one of the big differences between teaching and coaching. You know, I get f- 65 minutes three days a week to go into the science about why I think this is the best way to do this. Like, I, you know, summer strength conditioning coach, uh, excuse me, strength conditioning course I teach, I taught. You know, I had over half the class sit for the, the CSES exam and pass it, right? So I know the book side, right? They understand it. So that's teaching there, right? But they just can't walk down the weight room and teach the Krebs cycle, like I said, to an athlete and, and do that. Yeah. You have to base it down in a more simplistic form, right? So one strategy that I find effective with teaching, and, and this is 
been pretty well documented is I'm going to teach you how to correctly overhead snatch. Okay. First thing I'm going to do is tell you how to correctly overhead snatch. So you're going to grab the bar, blah, 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 blah. Then I'm going to demonstrate it to you. And then you're going to tell me how to effectively do an overhead snatch. And then you're going to show me. So I tell you, I show you, you tell me, you show me. Right? So that's one thing that more so in the weight room setting, I can't go on a test in, in the classroom and go, this is how you solve a torque equation. Okay, show me how to solve a torque equation, right? You did that, but in the weight room setting, but I am mathematically challenging them to solve these problems, right? But, you know, my student's not going to go down there and make the, you know, accounting major calculate torque around the knee joint during a deadlift. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, like, there are similarities. Number one, effective communication and understanding different learning styles, right? Like, I think you want your athletes to learn from you, right? You're not just wanting them to just follow your workout routine. Correct, yeah. Yeah, so you're teaching them. You're not only coaching, you're teaching, right? So being an effective communicator, tell, show, Tell back, show back, right? Implementing that, those are the similarities. The differences is difference is you're not gonna go downstairs in the weight room and again, like I've been saying, test them on things and spend 65 minutes teaching them about a topic. You, know, you don't have time for that. I mean, you got 120 football guys down there or something yeah. like that. You know? So you need to teach them and coach them and have them buy into you, right? Just like my students need to do the same thing, but the delivery is just a little different and the prep is a little different. Yeah. There's a ton of good stuff there. I think the teaching coaching is very, very similar. And the the content of what we're doing is a different part. The the, the Darian Barr, who is we had on two podcasts ago now, is something I I think you would really enjoy because I asked him what gave him the confidence to be able to because he's been challenging everything in the speed and speed development world. I'm like, what gave you the confidence to go out against all these people? And he mentioned the same point that you did is I had facts to back it up. Mm. So he's like, you're out there teaching his class and you're being confident because a lot of people ask, how do you be confident? How do you have that? And it's like, you have something to back it up. You have a foundation. You have a belief system behind this. It's not just you waking up one day and be like, oh yeah, I'm confident. I have this. It's you've put in the work to study it. The next thing that I really, really, really like that you said is you have to change your communication style. Mm. It goes back to almost that extreme ownership of if that student isn't getting it, if the athlete isn't getting what I'm trying to teach, that's not the athlete's fault. And maybe in some regard it is, but that's not gonna help me be a better coach. That's not gonna get that athlete to get it if I keep just yelling at them. You keep just throwing a piece of paper in front of them. You gotta change that communication style. Like, take the extreme ownership on you and like, okay, that's my fault, he's not getting that. I need him to get it, that's the end goal. That's our whole process, how can we do that? And I tell you, Austin, that's one thing that is one of the hardest things that I have to deal with. Oh, and, I, and I, let me tell you, Timothy White, I, I've, you know, Extreme Ownership Book is one of my favorite books, and I've really tried, especially when I do something incorrect. I'm a, I'm a guy, I'm a human, I yep. make mistakes in my personal life and my professional life. And and being like, oh, I had this incident happen, it's not on them, it's on me. Like, I've really tried to take that approach. I've succeeded in a lot of it. But sometimes I fail. If I have a student that is not scoring well, and I'm writing on the exam, please see me for help, and I never see that student, and they're repeatedly not doing well, and they're not seeking you out for help, and you're Hey, in the hallway, you pass them. Hey, how's it going? Everything good? Like, I'm trying to see, maybe they have something in their personal life going on that's causing their grades to fall, right? Maybe it's not just them being lazy. But sometimes it is, Austin. They're not putting in the work. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I do struggle with owning that. I have reached out to you verbally. I have reached out to you on your exam. I have emailed you. 
I put uh, walk in there and I'll put literally, hey, I'm gonna be here for three hours this afternoon if anybody wants to come in for help. I, I literally tell my students, I have the biggest whiteboard of any faculty member in this department in my office. I have yeah. the biggest one. Intentionally, because w- the biomechanics class has a lot of physics problems. And I'm like, we're going to come in the privacy of my office where nobody else can judge you, and we will just practice. Right? Mm-hmm. And when the student doesn't take you up on that, it's kind of hard to own their failure. Yeah. Well, it's the same as working with a very difficult athlete. Yeah, oh my goodness, and yeah. I, can, the, I can imagine. We'll the, put it that way. You have more experience with that than I do. But. Yeah, and, but I totally get that. And I, I still, again, like the more we try. And to me, the, the only way to go about it is just figuring out a way to keep attacking that at different angles. And again, maybe at some point it reaches a point where it's taken away from other things. And that's where you have to balance it out. Is that one athlete taken away from the group? Mm-hmm. And maybe that's not worth the effort to do it. But in some regard, we still have to keep continuing to push, even that that athlete uh, that we, there's a lot of athletes that don't like lifting there's a lot of athletes that don't even like their sport that they're doing it just for fame or something like that being a part yeah. of a team peer pressure yeah parents, peer pressure yeah. Right. No. so just continuing to find a different way to communicate with them and that that's that's one of my favorite things and i think i geek out about that a little bit is a psychological side of why isn't this clicking with you know one thing that when i was looking at some of the, the script we were going to follow today that uh one thing that I think you can sell to your really talented guys or gals that aren't putting in the work maybe in the and off the field like in the weight room and you know settings like that is like you're good and your athleticism has allowed you to always be the best imagine how good you could be if you put in more work yeah you know what i mean and sometimes i mean dude you work with 18 to 22 year old kids and i call them kids very respectfully because when i was 22 i was night and day different than when i was 25 and when i'm 25 i'm night and day different than i'm now i'm 30 yeah right pretty well documented the brain doesn't fully develop on average till you're 25 years old frontal lobe and that's the lobe that has to do with decision making and long-term thinking right that's on average austin that means mine might not even be fully developed yet right (laughs) so standard deviations there right so you know trying to get them to buy in on like you're good imagine how good you could be if you can do put in more work you could do more things opening doors right and i guarantee you you talked about you were never the big athletic guy you were always the hard worker well i bet you you have your job right now because you are always the guy that put in a lot of hard work and effort yeah you know what i mean again we wouldn't be having this conversation if you didn't do things certain way when you were playing so sure yeah Open doors, man. Different mindset. The last thing I want to cover about your expertise is kind of your personal training. And you mentioned the 350 bench, but yeah. I kind of want to talk about, we talked about it a little bit yesterday, but how has the staying in touch with the weight room helped you with your job and in the classroom and vice versa? Is there stuff that you're experimenting oh, with? How does Absolute, that go about? Absolutely. So um, a lot of people ask me, how do you track what you're doing in the weight room? How do you track what you're doing if it's working or not? Right. And I tell my students, uh, the answer in life to most questions is it depends. You can kind of like in any of my classes, you can answer it depends, right? It, what works for me is, is just doms on myself. Okay. So for example, I was doing like a three by three, um, bench press routine on flat barbell decline and incline for about a month. And I was really tore up for about three, four weeks. And then I did it. So I'll do that on Tuesday. Right. And like 48 hours later, I'm like, man, I'm tight. And about four weeks later, guess what stopped happening the next day? Getting sore. I wasn't sore anymore. Yeah. You know what that means? My body's adapted. So now I split right now. What I'm at is a uh, set of eight, six, four, two repetitions on flat, incline, decline. Guess what? I did that, what's today, Thursday? Friday. Friday. I did that on Tuesday. 
I'm okay today. I was not yesterday, right? I'm going to do it again next Tuesday. And I'm going to maybe add five pounds to each one of them, right? And then when my body, for me, especially for legs and chest, I don't really lift really heavy on back, shoulders, arms, right? But on leg day and on press chest day, I go, you know, pretty high intensity weight. And when I'm not getting sore anymore, I switch it up. Switch things up. Maybe it's just the order. Maybe if I go flat, decline, incline, maybe next week I'm going to go the other way. I'm going to send it back. So experimenting with stuff like, and Austin, I have a sample size of one. There's no research on this, right? And it's really hard to study because you have to recruit, say, 15 people and 15 people. And you guys or gals, for eight weeks, you're doing this routine, and then you're doing this routine over here, and then we're going to compare. And the problem with that, Austin, Paul Mellick has a great, great saying here, the problem with exercise is it works. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So if I take, you know, if I'm comparing really well-trained people programming, they're usually both getting a little bit better. So for me personally, I don't log what I'm doing. I'm lucky enough to have a pretty decent memory. I can backtrack seven days and remember what I did. And I switch it up that way. Now, the second question is how do I implement it in the classroom? So I'm, my primary job here is to teach biomechanics. And biomechanics is pretty much just broadly sum it up is the force application on the body. Okay. And a lot of our students are going to get into PT. And a lot of those pre-PT students, and I tell people, you know, you could be the 4.0 kid, graduate from PT school, and still not know how to program design and implement training strategies. You, you don't go to page 48 in PT school when you graduate and go, this is how you rehab an ACL injury. That doesn't exist. The best PTs have some sort of training background, okay? Now, what you learn in PT, I talk to my students all the time that are in these PT programs. It's really hard schools. It's hard what they're learning. But if you have a background in like experimenting on your body yourself from in the weight room or on the track field, right? If you have an experience of how this loads you and you can apply it in the class, right? So sometimes some of my students that don't have a weight lifting background, they're like, why are we talking about weight training? Dude, if you stick your arm out, gravity is going to push down on your hand. What's the difference between that and a 20-pound dumbbell in your hand? The only difference is the weight's heavier, but you're still having to create internal work to combat gravity, right? So when you're looking at these PT clinics, yeah, it's not a 500-pound back squat. It might be bands, yeah. but it's still an external force. So what I'm getting at is understanding how loads are applied on you in the weight room. I use a lot in class settings, you know, and that's chiropractic medicine, occupational therapy. So folks don't, what's OT? Um, I like to explain the difference between PT and OT is you get in a car wreck and you break your hand and you have surgery, you're going to see a physical therapist. If you get in a car wreck and you lose your hand, I now have to teach you, and this is what OT does, I need to teach you how to do everything you do in life now with the loss of function of your hand, right? You're still doing rehabilitation sciences, chiropractic medicine, strength conditioning, my goodness, your job is to load them with weight. <laughs> Athletic training, right? So I'm, those are the five big occupations that we get in this this field, right? Yep. So, you know, under, so first part of the question, I use DOMS to drive what I'm doing downstairs. And, you know, like yesterday for, uh, no, Wednesday for my leg routine, starting to get a little less sore. I did back squats and front squats for the sit squats. I don't know what you guys call them in your field. Sit down on the box. Wait a second. Come box back. Box squats. Yep. Yep. Box squats. There you go. So keep it simple, stupid, right? Um, I did that on front squats and back squats. I haven't done that in like five, six months, right? I'm pretty tore up right now, <laughs> right? Next week, I'll probably do it again. I'll probably be a little less tore up, right? Then week after that, I'll throw some bands around my knees, right? Because every time I train legs, I'm going to do a front squat, a back squat, and a deadlift. Well, why? 
I'm not an athlete anymore. I lift, besides bench pressing, <laughs> I lift for function. Mm-hmm. When we're done here, you're going to stand up out of that chair. That's a squat. I'm going to have to pick up that wrapper on the floor. There's your deadlift. I'm going to have to push the door open when I leave. There's a bench press. I'm going to have to pull the cabinet drawer to me. There's your bent row, right? Uh, I'm going to go upstairs and down them. There's your step up. And eventually, I'm going to have to reach up and grab the cup on the top of the cabinet. There's your push press. Mm-hmm. So every time, like me, and this is what I believe, like I don't know how this applies too much to the athletic realm, but eventually your athletes are going to play their last game. And hopefully, the research shows you better keep lifting because it's good for you. You need Maybe you don't need to be doing all these hand cleans and snatches. You're now, I recommend you start lifting from a functional perspective to keep you healthy. And remember, it's not all this volume on your chest. You watch these boys downstairs. They look like this. (laughs) They're 80% pressing, right? They'll do for every four sets they do of bench press, they'll do one set of bent row, right? So, and that causes all them tight muscle up here. Like you said, hunchback, I love that. You know, that's not functional. You know, having a big bench, I have a pretty high bench press. That's great. You know, but if I can't do 15 pull-ups for a 350-pound bench press, I'm 195 pounds, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. That's a weakness in the kinetic chain. To the same extent, if I can't back squat pretty close to what I can bench press, that's also a problem. Okay, so I would say I have an average back squat at best. Pretty good bench press, right? But point is, and this is the way, and, and again, I, you can apply this in athletics, man. Like, my sprinter is really awesome at going that way, but if they're not functionally strong in the kinetic chain, it's going to get exposed. It's going to get exposed for sure. And the other part I really, really liked about that is in a classroom you're able to – you, you've done this before, so you're not just teaching BS. That's one thing with a lot of strength coaches. You'll see them program these like 10 by 10 programs. And I was like, have you ever gone through a done 10 by 10? Yeah, oh my like, goodness. Because you have no idea what oh, that does man. to a body. And oh, that, training and coaching and down there, man, you better have done it before. Yeah, and if you if you haven't, you just have to realize. I, I, I'll give you an example here, Austin. One of my, during my master's thesis, I was looking at how long it takes to recover from compound versus single joint movements. And I had programmed five compound movements, five single joint movements, okay? But my compound, I was bouncing up down. So it was like a squat, a bench, overhead press, a deadlift, uh, a row, and a step up. So upper body, lower body, upper body, lower body, compound movements. Well, what's the problem here? The problem is when you do a bench press, all the capillaries and all the arteries in your chest are gonna start to dilate for blood flow, okay? You ever take a shower and someone comes in and turns the sink on, flushes the toilet and starts the laundry? (laughs) What happens to the water pressure? Starts burning. No, 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 think of it this way. Uh, Someone starts, I'm gonna turn the hose on here, you're in the shower and the laundry's going. There's water now going everywhere. What happens to your water pressure? Oh, pressure. Pressure Pressure. goes way down. Way down, right? Okay, so I'm gonna do a bench press and they're gonna dilate and all this blood flow here, okay? Then I'm gonna go there and they're gonna do a squat and what happens to all the arteries in their legs? Down. Opens up. Yep. What happens to the amount of blood flow going through the whole body? It's incredibly, it, it's, it's distributed throughout the entire body. At rest, you and I, most of our blood flow is going right here to the vital organs, okay? When we get up and run from a bear that comes in this room, everything in the legs is gonna dilate and everything in our internal organs is gonna start to constrict. You only have so, many, so much blood. Well, I had dilated this guy's entire body. What happens to the blood flow of the brain? Done. It drops. Yep. What happens to the amount of oxygen going to the brain? It <laughs> drops. What happens to the amount of blood flow to his intestines? Drops. What'd he do? He passed out <laughs> and then threw up. 
I had never done that routine, right? So I had programmed a shit routine, and the first guy I tested, true story, Austin, the first guy I tested passed out, and then when he woke up, he threw up. And then, like, at the time, I didn't know why, and I was, like, ran, like, down the hall, help, you know, like, and I eventually get my dis- uh, thesis advisor. He's like, you know, part of that's maybe a little on him, too. He probably should have looked at that program and be like, no, but what's the point? The point is, I had prescribed something that I had never done before. You know, I probably would have done the same thing in about, you know, up, down, up. Like, oh, I don't feel good. I'm going to sit down all <laughs> nauseous, right? Because think about it. You know, like when you do muscular movements, your arteries are going to dilate. Well, if you open up everything, you only have so much blood flow. And gravity, there's two things in life that are undefeated. Gravity and father time. Every one of us is going to get old and die. And gravity is constant. Okay? So when your brain is at the highest point of the kinetic chain, you have to fight gravity to get blood flow up there. Mm-hmm. Well, if everything's dilated, what's the body's reset mechanism? I'm going to lay you down flat. <laughs> right? Trying to get blood flow. Back. I'm gonna get, I'm, I got to get blood flow up here, man. The body's amazing. You know, whether you believe it was designed or evolved, you can't you can't argue that it's it's amazing. You know, like you know, one thing I think so cool in the biomechanical realm, and you can apply this into your sport sport um, prescription and training here, is if you cut my leg off. So I told you yesterday, I'm gonna find a way to get out of this room. Yeah. You know, I'm gonna hop and wobble, and then if you just cut off the other leg, I'm gonna start crawling on my knees. Cut the knees up, right? I'm gonna start crawling with my hands, right? I'm gonna still mechanically be able to move. You know, the, from the biomechanical sport realm, from at least from my, my outlook on it from a training regimen, is I want the body to be moving as mechanically sound as possible. So if you have this athlete doing like a heavy squat and you're noticing that their right leg is doing valgus, that's a problem in the kinetic chain that needs to be fixed because when they plant, say their right leg is doing valgus, I don't know, this is really hard to measure because I can't go then take you on the field and go until you tear your ACL. But if you're doing valgus on that right leg, well, when all your weight is on it because you're sprinting and you land with three to four times ground reactive forces, so you're standing there at 1,000 newtons and you land on a sprint, you're hitting the ground with 4,000 newtons and your knee is adducted, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. That's putting a lot of tension on the ACL. That's something you saw in the weight room. That's a problem in the kinetic chain here. So we need to do some band squats. We need to fire up those um, you know, muscles on the lateral side, the glute medius minimus, right? We need to fire those up. And, and maybe they're just also really tight on the lateral side of the knee. Yep. And muscles are rubber bands, man. So if we're tight over here on the lateral side, when you bend the knee, it naturally wants to pull. So maybe you need to strengthen the medial side and stretch out that lateral side, right? And yep. Let's get that kinetic chain moving like it should. And again, this is really hard to research because I can't then do that and have you go play until you get hurt. Yeah. The Institutional Review Board for Colleges not and Universities not that. gonna allow that, <laughs> right? So that's what makes like injury stuff so difficult to measure. You know, like quantitatively measure. But what we can do is, like I said, where it's going, you know, 10 years from now with these cameras and, and sports stadiums and stuff like that is- Yeah, so much more data. Right? Yeah, man. For sure. All right. Well, let's go into a rapid fire round then. Let's do it. Last little bit. What are your favorite books? What are some books that you think the yeah. listeners can get a ton out of? Oh man, so I, 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 my job makes me read a lot. Yeah. So if I'm gonna read something, I want to learn something. So I don't read fictional books. So uh, first up is Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you, Austin. Do you know why 60% of hockey players, what's 60, maybe more than that, are born in either January or February? 
Uh, it's the whole age thing. It's the age thing. Yeah. Now, I didn't have the hockey background, right? So I'm like, huh, this is crazy. But think about it. You're born January 1. I'm born December 31st. You are literally one year older than me, but you are getting hitting maturity faster. So you're more likely to be selected for juniors and better coaching, right? It talks about how like the South Korean uh, fl- uh, uh, airlines service um, used to be the most dangerous in the world. Now it's one of the safest, and it goes into why. So the point of the book and outliers, if you like to learn, and it has nothing to do in the strength conditioning field, <laughs> but if you just like to learn, it's an amazing book because it talks about there's a reason why we have outliers. It's not just chance. Mm. Second one, I'd say 1B, extreme ownership. Jocko Willink, I mean, prioritize and execute. Taking ownership of your actions um, has probably been professionally the best book I've ever read. Um, you know, I've listened to almost all of his podcasts, too. There's some things I don't always agree with. We talked a little bit about the student, you know, not performing well uh, that I struggle with. But just um, from a you know, just maturity perspective on just me being able to like stop selfishly going, well, it's not my fault, right? Owning that up. Uh, the Charisma Myth is a great book. Uh, we talked, one of the things I mentioned earlier is I think some of the best professors I always idolized were approachable and charismatic, right? I don't know if you can apply that too much to the strength conditioning field because you can't be looking like a softie over there either, right? You, sometimes <laughs> you got to drop down the hammer, but you know, you want to be approachable. If your guys, if your guys aren't coming to you, be like, hey, coach, uh, I didn't sleep too hot last night. If they're terrified of you to come to you and be like, hey, I've got some stuff going on in my personal life. This is why I'm not performing too hot. You know, the respectful leader is another great one. You know, as professors, um, I consider myself a leader. I consider myself um, a mentor as well. You know, so not only am I a teacher, man, it's awesome. Part of my job, I swear, I'm a therapist. Yeah. You know, these are 21-year-old kids. They have problems. You know, that, you know, parents die. Grandmothers get cancer. Girlfriends break up with you. You know, depression's real. You know what I mean? So a lot of times, you know, that, that book is very helpful for, for, for me on developing leadership skills. A fun one is Breaking Buds. Breaking Buds. Breaking Buds. I read this when I was in my senior and first year in, in uh, my master's degree when I was looking at trying to maybe go into the SEAL teams. It's cool from a science perspective on training strategies and nutritional strategies on how to eat to get through buds. Those guys run six miles a day in buds just to eat. The chow hall's a mile away. So just to eat three squares a day, they run six miles, right? So like strategies on how to train, how to sleep, how to eat, to get through. Like if you're, if you're someone that works like extreme endurance athletes, this would be something that's very beneficial. And the last one for any of you folks trying to get into PhD, uh, doctoral programs, uh, master's programs and potentially get into being a professor. There's a uh, really good book called uh, What They Didn't Teach You in Graduate School uh, that really breaks down like what do you need to do as a professor to do your job that they did not teach you <laughs> while you're in school. So like great stuff like that. So hope it didn't take too much time there. But. No, no, that was good. The rapid fire round doesn't have to be fast in your yeah, part. Just rapid yeah. fire questions. Second one. Who do you think a guest? Um, who do you think a guest would be good for this podcast? Who do, who do Man, you think? when when, when I heard that question was gonna be on here, it was a no doubter. Michael Kiley, he is a uh, practicing biomechanist and strength conditioning coach at Training House, which is a part of Twin Cities Orthopedics and Egan's right by the Vikes Training Facility. Um, he is an active coach, uh, working with high school all the way up to professional level athletes. He actively does this currently, and he also does thirty. 40 hours a week in a biomechanics facility. Um, his master's degree from Marquette uh, was the 
basketball intern, strength conditioning coach there. Um, hell of a guy, um, you know, super charismatic guy, but just knowledgeable, man, gets it. You know, you talk to people and you're like, you're smart, but do you apply it well? Or on the other end, I love you, but you don't know anything that you're talking about, right? He just gets it, man. So I think he'd be a great, great guy for you to have on. Awesome. All right. So what's next for you? What do you want your next step to be in your career and your profession and yeah, in your right life? Yeah, on. right on, man. Uh, easy, easy one here is tenure. You know, so um, I'm in my third year right now. Um, generally, you, you go up in your sixth year. Okay. Uh, I think I'm on pace to maybe go up a year early. And uh, that's something professionally for me I think would be not, not you know, job stability is great. But um, I think a lot of times when you're not tenured, you're doing things to get tenure. Yeah. Then once you get it, it kind of lets you, I'm not saying slack off. I'm saying it then allows you to go, okay, I'm going to teach a little different. I'm going to implement a different teaching strategy here because I know what I was doing was good, but does that mean it's not the most effective? Mm-hmm. So it allows you to kind of experiment a little more. Gives you a little bit of a foundation yeah. to go off of. And think of too in research, Instead of like, I've got to get pubs out, pubs out, pubs out, publications, that is. Um, maybe I can do like a really long-term study instead. Like I'm going to follow the soccer team here for a year, off-season, pre-season, in-season. I'm going to look at what they're doing in the off-season training. Then I'm going to track their body densities and, and biodex strength, right, and injuries, right, instead of I've, I've got to do a – week of data collection and just spit that thing out trying to get as many as possible yeah, yeah. so instead of just like spitting out numbers and like you know I, what i'm doing right now in teaching like my scores are good so i'm just gonna <laughs> keep walking that line versus your tenure it's like all right if i try something new and it bombs so what yeah that's you how know, you grow it's how you grow man so i think that that's that's the biggest for me and then from a personal perspective you know always developing relationships with my my wife and my my family and friends you know when uh my wife and i moved up when isidore and i moved up here we knew nobody you know, zero. I had met Paul Mellick. That was it. You know, so like, you know, continue personally to grow the, those relationships that you, us as people need. For sure. You need a social group. You know, you need. So, uh, you know, from a professional standpoint, like on the tenure side, personal perspective, you know, keep growing relationship with, you know, my loved ones and my family and, and uh, you know, friend, friends as well. Social group well. And master golf. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not get smoked in jiu-jitsu. Right? <laughs> All right. So... All right. Well, our last question. So somebody comes to you, they're, they're in a time of need. They're, uh, they're trying to reach the level you're at. They're in a valley. They're in this little bit of a hole. They're feeling that little pity party that you talked about yeah. earlier. What's the, the one minute billboard message that you can give them? Hey, keep those doors open, right? Don't close doors. Um, get comfortable being uncomfortable. All right. Find your passion on something. The only way you're going to find something you're passionate about is try new things, right? Like I said, it took me a long time to get there with that teaching part. Volunteer for things. Say yes make connections man like I, I in this field my goodness it's all about communication and connections right so you know meet as many people as you can conferences are great you know especially if people listen that are students and grad students they're basically really cheap student memberships right so make those connections communicate well say yes volunteer for things all of that is going to keep doors open for you boom well we just talked for two hours. That was Man. awesome. Yeah. We crushed it. Thanks for being on the podcast. Time flies when you're having fun, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood.